Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 728 with Eric Johnson. Eric is sharing some fantastic research revealing those little factors that could actually have a huge impact on what you end up choosing and how we can use that to our advantage if you want other people to choose the option that you personally prefer. So you'll learn, one, how the changing of order can drastically change what we choose. Two, the key to minimizing indecision. And three, the biggest decision-making mistake that people make. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP728. If you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, check out some goodies like the Gold Nugget email list, which give you a summary rundown of the actionable wisdom Eric shared right to your inbox, as well as unlocking the vault of all such summaries. That's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here is Eric's story. Eric J. Johnson is the Norman Eig Professor of Business and the Director of the Center for Decision Sciences at Columbia Business School. He has been the president of both the Society for Judgment and Decision Making and the Society for Neuroeconomics. He lives in New York City. Big thanks to Eric for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Eric. Eric, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Pete, thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to dig into your wisdom when it comes to decision-making. That's one of my favorite topics. We've had luminaries like Annie Duke and, and others on the show, so excited to get into, into your perspective. But I'd love if you could kick us off by sharing a particularly tricky decision that you've had to make in life and what was hard about it and how did you ultimately come to that decision? So one of the things that was most devastating in my life was actually a diagnosis of stage four Hodgkin's. Oh my. Now that's granted, that's a buzzkill to kick this off. But one of the things that got me thinking about is how people make such serious decisions about treatment and how the way that people actually pose those options to people changes what they choose. And I became madly obsessed with the literature and that sort of kicked me off into a lot of my interest in choice architecture. Well, now that's, that's fascinating right there and there. So life or death, high stakes decisions. You would think, uh, unlike software where you have like a bold blue highlighted choice of the two, which is nudging you that way, that people might be a little bit more robust in working through this. But can you expand upon that? Like how might presenting the options lead people to choose one treatment or approach more or less often than another? 
So my experience is interesting, but there's actually a nice study that makes the point even better. And that is they were looking at actually patients who were at the end of their life. For some reason, this is going to be a depressing day today, but I'll try not to be. Mm. And they gave them the choice of two different kinds of end-of-life care, just pre-checked one box or the other. One is called comfort care. The other is called essentially extreme care. We'll do everything we can to keep you alive. In the other case, they just take care of your pain. And there was a 30% difference between people's choices. And the question is, why is that the case? And it's because that's not something we've thought a lot about. So you might think an important decision is something where, well, it doesn't matter how you ask the question. Well, this is an important decision we don't get to make very often, hopefully almost never. Yeah. And so lots of the decisions we make in life are things where we don't have a clear preference. And that's one of them. But some of them are pretty common. Like, what are you going to eat in a restaurant? You may have a rough idea. You know, you, I don't like liver. But there are a lot of options out there. and You're trying to predict what you're going to like in a half hour when you've actually finished the meal. Well, yeah, that's powerful. And in some ways, and I guess the the why behind it could be any number of things is like, well, I don't know, I guess if this is what's checked, that's what most people do. <laughs> like, I guess this is the standard or recommended go-to option if it's the one that's checked. Or maybe it's like this decision is so overwhelming and, and intimidating that uh, it's kind of a relief that something's already been checked for me. So I'm just going to roll with it. We're speculating here, but like, what do you think is behind that? So you've got two of the three things I think happens. One is basically it's easier to take the default. Okay, ease. Second thing is endorsement. It's as if the person who designed the menu chose something for you. So that must be the best thing. But there's something that's a lot more fundamental, which is we actually think about things differently depending upon how they're framed. So there's a great study I love, which actually gives people the choice between 70% lean hamburger or 30% fat hamburger. Now, you're smart, your audience is smart, you realize that's the same thing. But yet people, when they have the word fat as a description, think about the hamburger differently. They think about clogging their arteries, they think about it being juicy. When it's lean, they think about protein and muscle mass. It's actually as if they're eating two different things, even though the label is the only thing that differs. When you ask people how much they'll pay, they pay different amounts. Or you ask people how good the burger tastes, they rate it differently. So that study shows that when we're in these situations, what I call assembled preferences, it's actually the label that changes what we think. Well, that's fascinating. And so the 70% lean one on all the dimensions of measurement. Except unless you're like a really juicy burger. Okay. <laughs> Understood. Okay. Well, so that's one big surprise right there in terms of just the way things are presented to us changes how we think about them and thus what we select, even if it's high stakes. Any other really big surprises or discoveries you've made over, over your lifetime of work in this domain? So that first thing is called a default. I want to give it a name so we have a handy mm -hmm. name. It's, it's not default like going broke. It's like default and what happens if you don't take an action. The second thing that surprised me is Predict actually, as I was writing the book, is the effect of order. Uh -huh. You know, what you see first can be more attractive. This is why you go down a supermarket, people actually have paid to be in different positions in the aisle, so you'll see them. Uh -huh. So something at eye level is actually typically gets more attention and is seen first. So it turns out when you look at the many studies that have been done, this effect of order is surprisingly large. Uh -huh. And first is where you want to be if you want to be chosen. Is that right? Well, almost most of the time, particularly if it's a place where the decision maker is in control. So they look at first, they look at second, then they stop. 
So on lots of websites, for example, people only will look at one or two options, click on them to look at them more carefully. Mm -hmm. But let me give you the counterexample. Imagine you're instead of going back to the same restaurant we had the menu at before, but now the waiter, it's a fancy place, is reading you the menu. Yeah. Now, are you going to just pick the first or what else is going on there? Wait, it's so funny. That's only happened to me a few times whatever that says about my dining choices. But uh, I remember, I feel like a little bit nervous, like, okay, all right, really got to strap in, listen, pay a lot of attention. And, I, and I'm thinking, I don't know if this is what most people do, but like, okay, I got to think, I've got to give something a judgment of like thumbs up or, or thumbs down. Like you're a finalist or you're out, like right away, or else I just can't even like process like seven options right. given to me verbally. So I'm like, okay, don't even need to think about that one. Okay, don't even need to think about, oh, maybe, Prime rib, interesting. Remember that one. And, then, and so like, I'm trying to hold finalists in my head. And, and then I usually have to ask them to repeat something. Like, what was the third one again? Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's me, but I might be an anomaly. But you've gotten a great intuition for it. Because what happens, of course, is what's the one that's not going to be clobbered by the next one? The last one. Right. And it turns out in those situations where the decision maker is losing control, last has a big advantage. One of my favorite studies of this is, you may or may not have seen it, but there's a famous song contest that's been held for over 50 years in Europe called the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, right. And it turns out people have done studies. Last has a big advantage there because people remember it. Memory yeah, is like really important in, in both head, cases. So. But yeah, <laughs> the two in the head and you know, who knows what Estonia, sorry, any Estonian listeners. Hey, I'm Lithuanian, so pretty close. But who knows what Estonian <laughs> did in the second in the second song? You remember whoever was last. Yeah. So order to go back to your question is surprisingly important. Okay, thank you. Well, it sounds like we've maybe potentially answered this, but just to make it explicit, can you give us what is the big idea core thesis behind your book, The Elements of Choice? It sounds like we're hitting it. There's things like this that are impacting our choices, or, or how would you articulate the main idea? So there are two main ideas. The first one is how questions are posed make a difference. But the second one that's probably most relevant to your listeners is that you are a choice architect. You are a designer. You make the decisions whenever you present somebody with a choice whether it be your spouse, someone who reports to you, someone you report to, whenever you're presenting choices, you're actually a choice architect. You have control over many of these things, like what the default is or what the right order is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so then let's give us some, some core principles then in terms of if I have something, well, I guess, first of all, this presupposes that you're offering people choices as opposed to saying, this is what we're doing now. Now, I guess you may or may not have the authority or the power, influence, sway relationship to just by fiat <laughs> say, this is what's happening now. But, but maybe before we delve into the how do we present choices, I'd love to get your take on under what circumstances is it optimal to present multiple choices versus just the, hey, I'd like to do this, or how about we do that? Well, it's interesting. You say it in a way that says, how about if we do that? And in your voice, was a question mark. Mm -hmm. is if I could come back and say something else. An extreme would be by fiat. We are going to go and order this. Right. And that that you know, certainly saves lots of work and decision-making, but people often feel like they have lost a lot of power or input. It can be demotivating. Yeah. So a slightly gentler version of that is how many options do you give somebody? Mm -hmm. Do you give them one, which is your extreme case, in which case it's not really a choice, or to give them two or four or five. It's actually quite an interesting 
aspect of choice architecture. Well, yes. And so as I'm curious, what are the criteria or factors which might lead me to think, hmm, I'm going to go with one choice or option versus a multiple choice or option? So how well do I know the person making the decision? If I know a lot of their tastes, I can cut down the number of things I show them. So let's get, let's get, you know, a menu. When I'm telling my wife what's on the menu, let's say I'm calling her and saying what's on the menu because she's running a few minutes late and wants me to order for her. Mm-hmm. If I know her taste, I can give two or three. If it's somebody I don't know, I'm going to expand the number of options. Right. I'm going to try and figure out what options there are that are different. So the more I know the person who's making a choice... Assuming I'm trying to help them, mm-hmm. the fewer options I can give them. That makes sense, certainly, as a principle. And so, okay. And then I, I'm thinking it just from like a general like influence mastery perspective, I'm thinking in the course of, let's just say, I want a boss or collaborator or peer to come my way with something. And so, and I guess there's a whole other set, you know, we had Bob Cialdini on the show, who was awesome, of principles associated with with being influential. But here, it seems we're specifically zeroing in on in a world where we're sharing multiple options and we would like them to pick the one we want them to pick. How do we do that? So I think we've covered two things already. One is default. Say, if you don't have anything else in mind, here is the default. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of that that turns out to be very handy in my life. I could say to somebody, oh, we should get together for a meeting. What's good for you? That's giving them, in essence, unlimited, an infinite number of options. Yeah. Instead, I could say, look, 9.30 on Tuesday is good for me, but I'm flexible. Mm-hmm. Now, from my perspective, as the designer, as I call that person, I'm going to increase the probability that gets chosen and it's better for me. From the other person's perspective, it saves them a little bit of effort. Instead of having to go through their whole calendar, they can look first and start with that as a starting point. Mm-hmm. And so that's a way of, uh, that actually probably makes both the designer and the chooser, or the person making the choice, better off. Mm-hmm. Yes, I like that. And then, it's funny that I was just thinking about, I've had some conversations like with some, some sales type folk in which they're reaching out and they say, hey, would you like to meet at this, this time or that time? And I'm thinking, well, neither of those times because I don't want to meet with you at all. Any thoughts on, I don't know if you call that presumption or... There's a good possibility that they want none of your options. Like, I don't know, how does that come across? So let me step back one second. And the premise of the book is actually a little bit different than it would be if I was doing sales. And it is basically, you're trying to make the chooser make the choice that's in their best interest. Gotcha. In the world we're talking about, of course, that may not always overlap, but you probably want to get a a time that doesn't get somebody you'd have to drive into work an hour early for the meeting. Sure. If you're an ethical salesperson, hopefully your solution really is right. worth their time and effort relative to the alternatives. And in fact, you know, I'm an optimist and I think they basically are trying to get the right product to you that will make you a repeat customer. Yeah, sure. I'm with you. But so default would be one. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about sorting. What would be first, second, third? And notice if it's a salesperson, that's actually getting closer to the place where it's a verbal list. So you have to be careful that the last is going to be something that's also remembered. You have to be careful in, mm-hmm. in that decision as well. Right. So those would be two very concrete steps you could make in setting appointments. Oh, certainly. Well, and, and so then let's hear some of the others. We talked about the ideal number of options. So there's the, there's the one or there's the infinite, and then there's some discrete numbers in between. How do we think about that? 
Well, I, I think there the issue is basically, again, a lot of this is going to be think about the decision maker and how well you know them. But let me give you a sort of application that's not exactly how to be great, on, at least on your job per se. But there's a really nice example in dating sites. Dating sites differ in the number of options. They do. So let me ask you how you would do this. If you go to Tinder, the number is infinity. There's actually something called Tinder thumb from swiping too much. Now, on the other hand, there was a site called Coffee Meets Bagel that went started. Yes. I utilized that back in the day. It was very effective. Gave you one option originally <laughs> and or a small number of options. Right. And they were good. Now, the thing about the chooser thinks about those two things differently. In Coffee Meets Bagel, you would read the profile and go beyond the picture. Right. Because you have more time. You have mm-hmm. more time and, and you're not screening. Yeah. On the other hand, with Tinder, you're looking at pictures, I, I suspect. Yeah. And the <laughs> pictures get a big weight and all the other things like personality get mm-hmm. almost no weight. Yeah. So it depends on what you want the person to do. If you want them to make a good choice, it's probably a reason to reduce the number of options. So if I gave them too many options, that can result in, in a, a poorer choice because they may be more shallow in their evaluation, kind of like a tender effect versus if I give them a limited number of choices, like, hey, here's three really good options as opposed to, well, there's 14 things we can do. And then they're like, well, I don't know, like that consulting firm seems to have a cool name. So let's, <laughs> I guess let's go with them versus, oh, three. Okay. I can get, I can kind of get into a little bit of detail here and think through the pros and cons of this. That's right. Cool. All right. Well, so then Three, I I said, was kind of arbitrary, but uh, do you have some thoughts on two versus three versus four versus five? Well, one thing that's very tempting, write a book like this to say five is the magic number. Mm -hmm. But imagine we're designing an airplane. Would I say two engines is always the right number of engines? No. No, it depends on the kind of plane it is. So rather than say three, I want to give you the principles to think about, which is one thing is that you increase the number of options. People get more variety, but they tend to get overloaded. Mm -hmm. So... There are lots of cases where you want to give people variety, particularly if they don't know you well. Yeah. But I don't want to go like the New York City school system gives kids 769 different high schools they could choose between. Oh, boy. That's a bit too many. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about my toddler. I give him two shirts generally to choose from, and that seems to work pretty well. What do you think? Toddlers and clothes. Well, as they get older, they may want a little, a couple more. <laughs> but notice you're doing something super important there, which is you're limiting the choice set to options you want. I assume you pick those two shirts. Yeah, right. It's cold outside, so I'd like a long sleeve situation. This one is cleaner <laughs> than the other one. The dinosaurs. <laughs> a friend of mine solved the problem of how to get their three-year-old, so this might be useful, to bed by changing it from do you want to go to bed or not go to bed. Mm-hmm. To do you want to find a bed or do you want to bounce into bed? Oh, yeah. I did that one. Yeah. No more fighting, but notice uh-huh. control of the choice set is a lot of control there. And I think as a parent, you'd argue it's in both your and their best interest. That's excellent. Like, do you want to fly to the car like an airplane or hop to the car like a kangaroo? <laughs> yeah. like, You've done this before. You probably can't get away with that with uh, <laughs> grown-up professionals. Should we pay them with a check or with Venmo? <laughs> right. But you could, for example, you limit, you know, let's take a common that many of your listeners have, which is pension plans. How many pension plans you, you offer? Mm-hmm. Which ones? That's a real world example that I think is really important. And the funny thing is, for many of these things we're talking about, people aren't aware of their effects. Yeah. 
So the defaults, people have actually done studies where they say, okay, now you've made a choice. People see different defaults. They choose different things. And you say, did the default affect what you chose? And they say, no, it might affect other people, but I made my decision based on what I wanted. Right. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing for folks here is that the choices you make as an architect, as a designer, actually are things that will influence people. And often they won't realize the influence you have. Yeah, that's powerful. And the, and the results can be massive when you come to retirement age, like, oh, shoot, uh, there might have been a whole lot more money had I chosen a different option or a whole lot less. So, okay, we got a number of elements. Any other key elements we want to cover? I think we've gotten a, a big list. The only other one that I think would be important is when you give people choices, you often describe the choices. Gotcha. Right. So what might be called attributes. So price, quality for cards, you know, how many miles per gallon it gets, how fast it gets. Another thing that a designer does is present attributes. Imagine you're giving someone a choice between two consulting assignments. You might use travel, you might use challenge, mm -hmm. you might use opportunity for advancement. You as a designer get to choose which attributes are first and what's presented. Yeah, that's true. So I know it's a long list, but these are all things that you as a designer have as tools. And we describe choices or attributes. Are there any best or worst practices there? Because I, 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 again, I'm thinking about the overwhelm. I guess there's, there's relevance. Like, I mean, I, I might not care about your liters of turbo, what, horsepower or whatever. Like those don't, numbers don't mean things to me. And maybe I should be better educated about vehicles. That's come up before, but I'm just not. So any pro tips on best and worst practices for great descriptions within the attributes? So I, th I think one of the things that is a classic result is imagine calories. Now, if you're really concerned about your weight, you probably understand calories. Mm -hmm. But a very nice example is to convert that into the number of miles walking you would have to do to work off those calories. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. The general principle is making sure the attribute is in a concrete way that people understand. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that's great in terms of, I think of like computer things in terms of like, I understand very, very much what the impact of, of a one terabyte versus a two terabyte drive is. And I just bought a two terabyte versus others like, oh, what's that even mean in terms of like movies or songs or pictures or whatnot? Because I, I often find myself, if I'm reading something and I'm just sort of out of my depth, it's, I don't know, I'm thinking about power tools or drills or impact drivers or something. They, they have a number is like, is, is that good? I hope mm. it's probably not horrible if you're telling me about it. So certainly it has to be relevant and understandable. And I guess I'm also thinking about just sort of like how much is too much. Now I'm thinking about like sales landing pages on websites and some of them can just go for dozens of pages. And you're like, wow, are people reading that? And others are pretty darn quick in terms of header, subhead, couple bullets. And then that's that. How do you think about how we make the decision for more versus less? The really interesting thing about your point is that people seem to be very sensitive to the initial cost of information. So if you land on a page, it has an ugly font and it's hard to look at. Even if the offer is attractive, you're likely to bail. Yeah. So, you know, we know a lot just by watching firms do their customer funnel, actually how they actually acquire customers, that each click is very important. And to minimize the effort for each of those clicks is terribly, terribly important in attracting customers. 
And again, if you think about trying to get somebody at work to sign on for a project, very similar stories apply. Mm -hmm. So reducing the friction, making it as easy as possible to do that. Particularly at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, then I'm curious about sort of the flip side, any like mistakes or cognitive biases or things we really got to be on our guard for when we are trying to make optimal decisions and present choices optimally to others. So the first big mistake is most of us don't realize we're designers. So we're doing this very haphazardly. So, you know, we use what is first in our mind is what we tell people. So if you're saying, where do we go to lunch? What will happen is the thing that you think of first. It may not even be where you want to go. But in general, I think neglecting choice architecture is the biggest mistake that we make. It's because we don't think it affects us. And in fact, we don't even realize how it affects other people. So there are now a lot of studies showing that people don't do things that would be in both their best interest and the chooser's best interest. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Thank you. Well, tell me. Anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things? Well, I think the other thing I would say is realize that deciding how to present information to people is almost a secret power that you have. Yeah. That it's actually something that is a, a source of your ability to help other people that if you don't know about it, you're neglecting a really important aspect of your job as a boss or as a colleague or as a report, any of the above. And when you talk about power, that makes me think, can you share with us some more of the most sort of eye-popping results or case studies in how little changes make huge differences? So that pre-check thing, that was pretty wild in terms of like, how do you want to be taken care of in, in your final years? I mean, wow, what a huge impact just a, just a pre-check can make. Any other striking examples or cases that leap to mind? Well, let me talk about another of the tools we've talked about, which is order, what's presented first. Okay. It turns out on ballots, somebody's first, someone's second, et cetera. What research shows is the first choice gets about 2% more vote, even in presidential elections. So if we think about, go back to the year 2000, Gore versus Bush, and remember it all came down to Florida. In yeah. Florida, there, there was like 500 votes separating them. Mm-hmm. It turns out, Bush, George W., was first in the ballot in Florida because the governor, his brother, Jeb, got to pick who was first. And of course, any governor would pick the member of their own party. It wasn't because it was brother. That probably made the difference in who was elected president of the U.S. Hot dog. That is a great case study. Thank you, Eric. (laughs) It's not my research, but it's actually, there's a case, by the way, in Texas where two Supreme Court justices were running against each other. Pete Green versus Rick Green, whichever Green was in there, they randomized. That's how we know it made a difference. They put one first in half the time, the other first the other half the time. There was a 20% difference between, between who got the vote, depending upon who was first. Wow. So it was 20% when we actually got to randomize it. So it might be much bigger than 2%. Right. In that case, because they had the same last name yeah. and nobody knew who they were, that's one of the reasons it was 20%. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Right. That's really heavy. I'm just sort of sitting and processing that for for a moment. And then is for for our elections in the U.S., is that normally how it goes? The governor gets to pick or is it alphabetical? Is it very totally state by state? 
It varies a bunch by state by state, but often it's in some places the incumbent, which gives them an advantage. Mm-hmm. In other states, it's the party in power that gets to be first. In Delaware, it turns out, just to be equally surprising, the Democrats always are the first slot in the ballot. Always. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So something I thought about a lot is a a quote that I saw when I was a a young person reading science magazines, and it was a Browning quote, for a man's reach should exceed their grasp, or what's a heaven for? Mm -hmm. In other words, keep striving, and I can get there, but go for it. Oh, lovely. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, I think I have to admit that I, I very much like one that I did, which used the default manipulation to change people's willingness to be organ donors. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us the result. What went down? Well, basically, if you look at people's willingness, not necessarily to become to be a donor, but to be willing to be a donor, there is a 40% gap between those people where you are a donor by default, which happens in several European countries, and countries like the U.S. where you have to choose to be an organ donor. Mm-hmm. So defaults actually can change people's willingness to be an organ donor. Hot dog. And a favorite book? When I was very young, I read two books at the same time, practically, and they changed my life. And one was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. The other was Tom Walsh's Electrical Aid Acid Test. And being a, growing up in New Jersey and not seeing much of the world, this really opened up my eyes. Cool. And a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job? I actually use, I've tried a lot, like many people, many different kinds of planning software. I use something called Marvin, but the important point is not the software. It's basically sitting down every day and doing a to-do list that includes time, not just, you know, I'm going to do it in this order, but I'm going to do it at this time. And is there a particular nugget you share, something that really connects and resonates with folks you're chatting with? One of the things that I find interesting about using social media and particularly to promote the book is you see what other people are saying. And I think one of the things that I hear people repeating, so I let them choose the nugget, is basically being a choice architect is something that's a power that I didn't know I had. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, really good Twitter is Prof. Eric Johnson, and there's also a nice website on theelementsofchoice.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think basically realize that you actually have the power whenever you present choices to another person that if you don't think about it, you're going to waste an important part of what you can do on your job. All right, Eric, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck with all of the choices you make and present. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun, Pete. My mind is still blown by what Eric has said about voting and the top candidate placement, getting a 2% more votes across the board. And that is just so... Interesting implications for <laughs> for democracy and just as get you thinking about, well, putting things first is is one tool that could be helpful. And then just to to really think about, boy, given these subtle impacts, if I'm doing a survey or trying to collect feedback versus wanting people to say something in particular that I or choose something in particular that I want them to choose, how I might play the game differently. And indeed, level up to being a choice architect, as Eric says, and using this power he didn't even know he had. So again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP728. I hope to catch you next time. And peace. 
Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.